The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. The headlines this hour. China's rebound stalls, weaker than expected retail sales and industrial production raise concerns about the rate of recovery for that economy. And that's weighing on Asian equities. President Trump vows to veto a stimulus deal if it involves postal funding as uh, Senate leaders leave Washington until September after failing to use an extra week in Congress to reach an agreement. This will be one of the greatest frauds in history. They're not going to get the $3.5 billion, therefore they can't do the universal mail-in vote. Israel and the UAE agree a peace deal that will see Israel cease its annexation of parts of the West Bank. UAE Foreign Minister Anwar Gargash tells CNBC it's an historic moment. We are really uh, sort of diffusing a real threat on a two-state solution. We're not really uh, putting together a roadmap for peace. This is really up to the Palestinians, up to the Israelis up to other traditional brokers such as the Americans. And France warns of reciprocal measures after Britain decides to impose a 14-day quarantine on travellers starting tomorrow morning. Chinese retail sales then unexpectedly dropped for the seventh straight month in July, falling by 1.1%. Industrial output also missed forecasts, despite rising by 4.8%, while fixed asset investment fell 1.6% between January and July. So those are the hard stats from the official statistics bureau let's get to sam who can perhaps add a bit more color to these numbers what do they tell us then about the state of this recovery sam good morning to you jeff well i mean this data out today goes to show that you know things are continuing to improve in china but it was the pace of that economic activity that fell short of expectations and officials say there is still pressure on employment we saw the unemployment rate remain unchanged from the previous month at a relatively high level and that is certainly concerning for authorities but as you suggested there it was those retail sales that were the big disappointment we haven't seen a positive reading uh, all year so really these are lagging the recovery as uh, you know there are lingering worries about these jobs but also pay really forcing people to tighten their belts perhaps that resurgence that spike in cases of coronavirus we saw in July over in China may have perhaps made people a little bit cautious about going out and spending their money but certainly these numbers are not what we're used to seeing in China so I think you know if the Chinese consumer is anything to go by we certainly probably have a long way to go in terms of a full recovery. Uh, What is offering some relief, though, is that uh, industrial output, which uh, rose 4.8%, as you mentioned. It was the same as June. Uh, It was worse than expected, but it was still the fourth month that we've seen uh, of growth as domestic demand has certainly been holding up well, as we have seen this boost in infrastructure spending by the Chinese government, which economists say is really being used to mitigate some of these external risks like trade pressures from the US, but also 
also uh, coronavirus. And just for an example, we are now seeing that China has now said it plans to expand its huge railway network by one third by 2035 to try to support uh, the economy. And fixed asset investment year to date uh, came in bang on expectations. Officials say investment is recovering on policy support as well. So, you know, all in all, the, the data does sort of paint a picture of still an uneven recovery in China like we saw in, in Q2. And I think the timing is certainly significant given that, you know, these trade talks are happening between China and the US uh, this weekend. Certainly as far as Beijing's concerned, I think the strength of the Chinese economy is being looked at as key in the face of some of this US pressure, Jeff. Terrific, Sam. Thank you very much indeed for that. And um, somewhat confusing given the stronger auto sales print and some of the strong numbers we saw elsewhere. But let's push on uh, and we'll get some analysis on this in just a moment. U.S. and Chinese officials are set to hold a virtual meeting this weekend to review the progress of their phase one trade deal. This is the relationship between the two countries has deteriorated in recent months, with President Trump threatening to end the agreement over China's handling of the pandemic and a new security law in Hong Kong. Tensions have also risen over a potential U.S. ban on Chinese-owned video app TikTok. White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow has warned big differences remain between both sides, but added he is satisfied China is making progress in meeting certain commitments on the trade agreement, saying the country has, quote, really picked up imports of U.S. goods. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo called for high-speed wireless networks to ban Chinese companies like Huawei, which he accuses of sharing personal user data with Beijing. Speaking during a visit to Slovenia, Pompeo said the private information of Americans and Europeans must be protected. It is absolutely critical that every nation makes a good, sovereign decision for itself about how uh, private information of its citizens is going to be handled. And what we want to make sure is, all of us, America too, uh, that uh, we're getting it right. That the people who put the infrastructure in place, the countries from which those, uh, those uh, systems emanate, don't have ready, easy, automatic, mandatory access for their national security system. I'll just be very blunt. Um, that's an absolute imperative. It's an imperative then larger for Europe and the United States to work together because we have information that goes back and forth. We have American citizens that travel across networks that run all throughout Europe. And so it was very important that we get this right. Mike Pompeo there. Well, Janet Murray joins us, Investment Director for Bruin Dolphin. Uh, Janet, let's just pick up on the retail sales number with you, if we might here, out of China. Um, at negative 1.1%, it is better than the June number that came in at negative 1.8%. But it seems somewhat at odds with the better July uh, auto sales data we've been looking at and some of the improvements in housing trends. Um, what do you make of the figure? So I think, you know, the disappointment in retail sales, it may be um, because there has indeed been some spikes in cases uh, locally in various uh, parts of China. So I think that could have potentially deterred people from going out more to spend in restaurants and in shops. And of course, I think the labor market situation there is still uncertain. So if you're a consumer, you probably would want to save more at 
at the moment, I mean, Chinese, they do love to save generally. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're still in a bit of a more cautious mode. Um, in terms of uh, the you know more durable uh, purchases, I think that could be because of, you know, uh, potentially government stimulus, uh, maybe there were price cuts, uh, the slashing prices that make these more attractive. And, you know, I, I think, I, I personally think that the, the support in retail sales could be more because of people just, they, they just don't want to go out to spend because Chinese people are generally being more cautious of the virus. They just don't want to get uh, caught in the health front. Just to, to make the point uh, clearly to our audience, the uh, auto sales number was a positive 12.3%. So it really looks out of whack a little bit with that overall weakness that we're seeing in the retail tre- uh, trends generally. But let's move on. Um, so given that we see this reluctance to go out and spend at the moment, how easy will it be for China to meet its obligations under the trade deal with the United States? What was it there? They're supposed to spend a combined $200 billion over this year and next um, to satisfy the trade agreement. How are they going to do that if retail sales are still so weak? Yeah, first of all, uh, China is already lagging the commitment of buying obligations. So that's the first thing. So um, that may potentially hinder the trade talks we are going to see on Saturday. And I think a lot of these products are being committed to are agricultural products like soybeans. So these are more kind of, you know, uh, consumption uh, for food, you know, the daily, the daily necessity for people, you know, for farming, et cetera. So that could put that part of the commitment could potentially be more fulfilled. Uh, but I generally think, you know, uh, the fulfillment of the 200 billion of purchase over next this year and the next is probably difficult to achieve. But you know, there's a clause in the trade one phase deal that uh, if there's an unforeseeable natural disaster of phenomenon, then uh, you know China may not commit to this. And I'm sure this pandemic qualifies as one of these unprecedented situations. So um, that there would be a very difficult talks ahead, and I think that uh, both sides don't want to deviate too much for now because, you know, the economic situation in both countries is certainly not favourable for further derailing of talks. Yeah, I mean, you've pointed to the current level of stress in the relationship. Is there any reason to adjust positions in portfolios going into the weekend in anticipation that there is the potential for them to go badly wrong? Do you think there's going to be any impact on portfolios from the weekend talks? So uh, we don't think that the weekend talks will deliver something disastrous uh, for the moment, because as I mentioned, there's still a, you know, an excuse for China not to meet these commitment purchases because of the pandemic. And I think, you know, there has already been a lot of recent uh, te- uh, heightening in tension between the two countries, in particular on the technology side. Um, and what we've seen from markets actually is still, you know, despite these geopolitical tension, markets are still um, making highs uh, in the past week. And so I think, you know, markets are still kind of focusing more on the better data coming out and the you know, the progress on the health front and also the very unprecedented monetary and fiscal stimulus that we're seeing. So first of all, I don't think there'll be a disastrous outcome. There will still be room for talking. There will still, you know, they will still uh, kick the can down the road for now on the trade side. 
because it really will impact the real economy if they do you know they can't uh they, they, if they scale back on the uh space on trade deal or they can't make any progress um so i think that uh there will be a disastrous outcome and secondly i don't think marquez will be too bothered by given the recent momentum well, let me push back. I mean, you said the recently better trade data. As we look at those numbers that are really core for the recovery in the economy, like fixed asset investment, it's still down 1.6% January to July. This is the investment in the future for the economy that businesses should be making at this point if they believe in more growth in the economy. And yet it's a negative Uh, 1.6% here. Does that imply that we may have come as far as we can in markets currently? Do you see much more room for upside at the moment? Well, I I think so, because actually, um, I mean, the current data, we're still in the pandemic. We're not over yet. So I won't be surprised if data are still on the weaker side for now, although there has already been some improvement. So first of all, that's, you know, we're still in a difficult situation. Let's not forget that. And secondly, I think, you know, looking at the money supply data in China, there seems to be some improvement. And I believe that uh, the government would continue to stimulate or increase the stimulus if there is a need to do that. And also, I think, you know, uh, first of all, the fixed investment would start by the state. And I think, you know, there's still a lot of room for investment in China, not just the railway sector, but in terms of the technology, infrastructure, and the innovative side of the country. I mean, we all know that China and US are decoupling in terms of the technology state. So I think there's still a lot of room for uh, more investment in this area. So it's not just the, the, the kind of old industry that needs investment, but from the private sector, it's all more on the tech side. That's for the future. Janet, good to talk with you. Thanks for giving us your time this morning. Uh, Janet Murray, Investment Director for Bruin Dolphin. Uh, Initial weekly jobless claims in the US have fallen below 1 million for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic. That beat expectations. Uh, Total claims came in at 963,000 for the week ending August 8th. That's down from nearly 1.2 million the week before. Continuing claims are also down to 15.5 million. The drop follows the expiration of the $600 Paycheck Protection Program at the end of July. President Trump says he'll continue to oppose the Democrats' calls for an additional $25 billion of funding for the U.S. Postal Service as part of the new stimulus bill. He said he would veto a deal that included provisions for mail-in voting. Democratic rival Joe Biden has called his stance, quote, an assault on democracy. The Senate has adjourned until after Labor Day on September the 8th without reaching any agreement on a new stimulus package. This as negotiations for a new deal in the House of Representatives remain gridlocked over food aid, municipal aid and unemployment benefits. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said senators could return early to vote if lawmakers are able to reach an agreement. But he accused his Democratic rivals of a lack of effort during negotiations. The Secretary of the Treasury and the White House Chief of Staff have given ground. They put new issues on the table that Democrats wanted. They've worked to find commonality. But the Democrats are barely even pretending to negotiate. Barely even pretending. 
Uh, Mitch McConnell there. Let's have a trot over to the wall then and just show you uh, how bad it was. And to be honest, it wasn't all that bad as we came to the close for the US session here. And the Nasdaq is hanging on to uh, this 11,000 level. So even as we've talked all week about is there a rotation into cyclicals that reflect a recovery in the underlying data points, you know what? There are still plenty of people out there that feel that we are going nowhere on interest rates. We are not going anywhere where particularly quickly on growth and that there are lots of good reasons uh, then to stay with companies that can demonstrate a higher earnings trend and that represents a lot of those fangs and technology stocks. Um, Let me talk about uh, some of the uh, comments that we've had uh, from the talking heads out there just to give you an idea of what people are discussing. If you have a look at CNBC Pro, did I ever mention what a wonderful service they provide? Matt Maley, the chief uh, equity strategist at Miller Tabex said he anticipates a pullback of five to seven percent or more and thinks that would be positive it's the one way that we might ultimately get a much higher breakout. He says we will not go straight up from here. Uh, If we do, we are talking about a bubble and the correction becomes more severe. So he'd like us to uh, climb the stairs effectively rather than shoot for the stars like a rocket. Let's have a look at the treasuries. This was really interesting and it's worth taking note. All of you who are inflationists who fear that we are going to see real inflation trends re-emerge next year and worry about the level of refunding that we're seeing in the government, you'll note, and watch this like a hawk here, the 10-year Treasury note back with a 7, uh, 0.71. And on the face of it, that looks like a diddly yield, doesn't it? But the fact that we are continuing to see the yield rise here will, of course, please those who are starting to uh, get just dabble a little bit in the tips market and get themselves some inflation pr- protection here. Possibly the reason that we saw some of this was um, what was described as a rather lacklustre 30-year auction. Um, Peter Bokvar, uh, talking to our colleagues in the United States about this, just saying, Uh, Longer-term interest rates are moving to a high of the day after the poor 30-year bond auction. The uh, bid to cover uh, was 2.14, the lowest since July 2019 and below the one-year average of 2.35. The issue, uh, if you're not familiar with the terminology, the bid to cover just represents how much demand there ultimately is to own this little bit of paper. And obviously, the market is incredibly sensitive to the idea that we might at some point get to what they call a buyer's strike when the bond investors decide, you know what, we, we just don't want any more of this paper at this price. And that's when you start to see yields move significantly higher. And boy, would that be a bit of an earthquake for those who are pricing in very low long-term rates. Um, Let's have a look at the opening calls. This is uh, what we're setting up for at this hour. And there's not a lot to go for, is there? It effectively looks flat. And I suggest to you that that's a little bit of the push-me-pull-you that we are seeing around the data points at the moment. And we had a great conversation with Janet Mui there about what that retail sales number in China represents at this point. We're all looking to China to show what happens if you successfully come out of a lockdown and the economy is 
is allowed to breathe again. And when you start to get some of those data points, like a negative 1.1% print year on year for July, then you go, hmm, maybe the strong rebound, the the much talked about coiled spring of uh, consumer demand doesn't look quite as strong as you might expect, rather like a, a ropey old elastic band than a coiled spring. Anyhow, that's the early call. We'll continue to watch these as we take you forward to the open. Still to come, eight candidates are in the running to lead the World Trade Organization. We're going to hear from uh, Saudi Arabia's nominee and what he thinks about the growing tensions between the US and China in just a moment. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Israel and the UAE have agreed to normalise diplomatic relations. Uh, Israel has also agreed to suspend its planned annexation of the West Bank, which is illegal under international law. In a joint statement, the country has agreed to, quote, chart a new path and will soon establish embassies and exchange ambassadors. President Trump, who helped to arrange the new deal, has praised both leaders for their efforts. I want to thank Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed of the United Arab Emirates, two fantastic people for their vision and their leadership. And I look forward to hosting them at the White House very soon to formally sign the agreement. We'll probably be doing it over the next, I would say, three weeks. And they'll be coming to Washington. President Trump there. Uh, Dan, those of us who's who've been around long enough to remember Camp David and Yasser Arafat and the various handshakes and photo opportunities, will look on this optimistically, but with a sceptical eye. Uh, Why will this deal be different from all those in the past that have founded? That's an excellent question, Jeff. And it's one of the questions I put to the UAE Minister of State for Foreign Affairs last night in an interview at the ministry here. Clearly, more questions than answers at this point about this new deal. However, this is being hailed as an historic agreement for the UAE and Israel with the help of the United States in their move forward to normalize relations. Up until now, in sophisticated circles in Abu Dhabi, you would not even say Israel out loud. So this is quite a significant step in the right direction. Uh, For its part, Israel has also agreed to stop its annexation of key parts of the West Bank. And this deal is also expected to lead to improved trade and investment ties, uh, perhaps even direct flights as well. If you're a citizen or a resident of the UAE, you can't fly directly into Israel. So uh, no movement into Tel Aviv unless you fly via an intermediary country like Jordan. So this is quite an interesting step forward. Uh, but at the same time, of course, the deal is not perfect. Saudi Arabia, which is, as you know, Jeff, the largest economy in the region and a critical strategic ally for the United States in the Middle East, has so far 
stayed silent. At the same time, we also have the Palestinians who say this is a dangerous deal and they've called for an emergency meeting of the Arab League. And just in the past hour, Iran is also kicking off. So I discussed these issues with the minister last night and I began by asking him how this deal came to be and why now makes sense. Listen. There's been real concern about Israeli plans uh, with regards to annexation. Uh, And, you know, we were in Arab League meetings and we were in various uh, contacts and the whole idea was what do we do to stop this annexation. Somehow annexation seemed as a looming threat that will undermine any prospects of a two-state solution. Uh, As a result, uh, the UAE was quite active uh, diplomatically and we took an unprecedented step of uh, our ambassador uh, with his editorial in the Israeli press, saying basically that annexation will just wreck the whole prospects of, of negotiations uh, and peace and will affect really Israel prospects of establishing relations uh, with the Arab world. Uh, in various conversations, uh, many of our friends uh, would ask, what else can we do? And I think uh, it the idea sort of developed here. You know, I can't really pinpoint a certain moment, but the idea developed that why don't we actually create a win-win solution? The critics might say, though, that this deal looks weak without a commitment from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has been leading this regional blockade since it began. So where are the Saudis in this deal? I think uh, Saudi Arabia is uh, one from our sort of pan-Arab uh, vision, Saudi Arabia is one of two major pillars. Egypt and Saudi Arabia are the two major pillars. What we're really doing today is we are really uh, sort of diffusing a real threat on a two-state solution. We're not really uh, putting together a roadmap for peace. This is really up to the Palestinians, up to the Israelis, up to other traditional brokers such as the Americans. What assurances have you been given from Israel that it will stick to that commitment, that pledge not to push forward with annexation? Well, again, again, I would say that uh, the assurances are very political here. I mean, it's a three-way deal. The weight of the United States is there. So this is not something that will last forever, but this is something that will suspend and will allow us to take away the threat over a two-state solution through annexation and will allow, uh, hopefully, uh, a return to the negotiating table. I think the other one, the other part, of course, is that this is a process and Israel has an interest that this process of a relationship with a major Arab economy, a major Arab country is successful. And I think it's also about credibility. As you move forward, you create credibility. You mentioned credibility. I mean, looking at Israel, looking at Benjamin Netanyahu, this is someone who has been indicted for breaching trust, accepting bribes, fraud. He's also in a tedious power sharing arrangement in Israel right now. Is he really a credible partner for the UAE? We didn't really say that this is uh, establishment of relations with Netanyahu. It is the establishment of a relationship with the state of Israel. And I think the politics of Israel will remain whoever is prime minister down the road. And I think they have an interest in 
what we are seeing today. And I think this is important because, uh, you know, strategic decisions like this are actually linked to states. They are not linked to personalities. Personalities make a difference. But at the same time, if something is strategic and is in the interest of this or that country, I think it will continue and it will outlast any person there. Jeff, the UAE foreign affairs minister there. Back to you. All right. Terrific, Dan. Thank you for that. The race to replace Roberto Azevedo as the director general of the WTO is in full swing with eight candidates vying for the position. Azevedo announced he would step down a year ahead of schedule, sparking the election in an exclusive with Hadley, Saudi Arabia's WTO director general candidate Mohammed Al-Tuwajer told uh, CNBC he's optimistic about US-China relations despite growing tensions between the world's two biggest economies. We should look at the uh, uh, negotiation. The fact that US and China managed to go through negotiation and do phase one, I think is very encouraging. That means things can be delivered with negotiation. So if we manage through the organization to prove there is progress, accountability, trust, credibility of the system, I think we can achieve a lot with negotiation, not only between US and China, but with everyone else, with every other situation. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.